0: Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast exploring the face of Mennonite peacemaking in the 21st century. I'm Hannah Heinziker, the executive director of the Mennonite Inc., a publication of Mennonite Church USA. And I'm joined today by my usual co-host, Jason Boone, who is the director of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Hey, Jason.
1: Good to see you, Hannah.
0: Good to see you. And we also have with us today, I'm very excited about this, two folks who are going to talk with us about immigration. And we've got Salo Padilla, who's the coordinator for immigration education for Mennonite Central Committee U.S., calling in from Goshen. Hi, Salo. Thanks for being here.
2: Hi, Hannah. Hi, Jason. Good to see you, buddy.
0: And we've got Tammy Alexander, who is the senior legislative associate for domestic affairs with MCC's Washington, D.C. office. Hi, Tammy.
1: Hi Hannah. Hi Jason. Nice to see you too Tammy. Thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah so we are grateful to have both of you experts here with us in this um, for this podcast to talk with us a little bit about a topic that that really has been at the center of national conversations and Mennonite conversations for a while now. So Salo I know that you just returned from a trip to the U.S.-Mexico border and from this walk, uh, a 75-mile migrant trail walk that you were on. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit right now about the feeling at the border and the feeling on that walk at this particular moment in time.
2: Yes, yeah, I just returned from a 75-mile walk in the desert. Uh, This walk has been happening for the last 14 years and since 2004. and uh, MCC has been sponsoring the walk for for a while. I being this was my seventh time walking uh, the migrant trail, and uh, the feeling at the border at this time uh, there are different views on this. Uh, uh, but especially when we, we went to uh, the area in Arizona, and um, there is not much happening on like this this idea of the, of the wall, right? Uh, there's already a wall. Uh, and I think mostly people who uh, who go there, when they encounter the wall, they say, well, there's already a wall here in the news. And, and I think we've been hearing that there's this discussion of wall. There are 700 miles of wall already uh, out there. And a lot of people, what I find is a lot of U.S. citizens don't know that there are 700 miles already of wall, especially around cities. Um, and And also that communities are being separated. Many communities along the border are against wall, building the wall. Uh, they get affected. There's a lot of commerce, a lot of markets happening between both cities on both sides. And uh, what I find is that many people, especially along the border, are against building more wall or more barriers to separation because communities depend on each other, uh, both ways. So people in the U.S. go over there and, Buy cheap medicine. Uh, people come buy stuff on this side uh, at the WalMarts and cheap places where they can get food and just take it back. So, so then that is uh, some kind of resistance. Also, there is this idea that um, that there is no people, there are no people crossing, uh, and that is uh, that is not true. It's still, people continue to cross. Yes, there has been kind of a, a little bit of a decline on people crossing. But um, what happened with the migrant trail is we saw a lot of uh, things that people carry when they are crossing backpacks, uh, jugs of water, and many other things, more than I have seen in the last two years. So um, that has been a concern. In the last, uh, since October to to till now, uh, the, the remains of 61 migrants have been found in the desert, just in Arizona. So that also gives us an idea of. People are crossing. People are dying, um, and so that's that's one of the things that we feel there. Um, there's also this feeling of resistance uh, that is building up at the uh, at the border uh, from many organisations, and I feel that that's a positive as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's probably one I can report from from the border.
0: Sure, and you kind of are starting to get into an interesting point of you know, we've been, if people have been watching the news, they may have read that deportations in the United States are way up just in the last four months since this new administration has taken office. But there's also been a lot of reporting saying that there have been less border crossings. And you're kind of nuancing that and saying that's not necessarily true. Um, I wonder if either you, Tammy, or Salo, both of you could kind of speak to the current sense of what's happening with immigration in our country right now and how these things are getting reported and what the reality might be that we're not seeing in mainstream news sources.
3: Yeah, this is Tammy. I can take a crack at that. Um, I I think one thing that's important to understand is that the policies that we're seeing under the Trump administration are very much a continuation of what we had seen under the Obama administration, only worse. I mean, President Obama was referred to as the deporter-in-chief, and that was because he deported more than 2 million people, which was more than any U.S. president before him. And, you know, immigrant detention in this country was way up by the end of the Obama administration. And so he really, President Obama turned over this very well-oiled uh, deportation and detention machinery to the Trump administration. And so they've taken that and they're trying to ramp that up even more. So where we're seeing, you know, more deportations and more detention, it's it's still, you have to compare it to what, what was there at the beginning of the year. Um, and... And though some of the statistics do show that there are fewer people trying to cross the border, I think we have to be careful to read too much into that too, because those numbers do fluctuate for various reasons. And I think a lot of a lot of folks who might be considering whether to come to the U.S. or when to come to the U.S. Um, you might be waiting a little bit to see what's going to happen under the Trump administration and and when they want to make that journey.
2: Yeah. Uh, the The other. Um... The situation that's happening at the border is that many of the people who are crossing um, are being taken out into the very dangerous areas of the desert. So, so then we really don't know how many people are crossing, uh, but one example from last week uh, as I was walking, a group called No More Deaths called into the Migrant Trail group. We were 58 people walking and they asked if we could uh, support a search team that was walking for a look, looking for a migrant who was lost in the desert, and uh, four of us volunteered to go out into the desert and and, and look for and search for, for this person, um, and we went with a team. We uh, drove in a four-wheel drive off-road for about two hours into the desert, up into the mountains, and there were two search teams, and the other search team found him first, and he was without water, but he was up in the hills and. Uh, when we walk in the migrant trail, we walk in in desert flats in, in little, little Valley. Uh, that's where 10 years ago people were crossing. But now they're being pushed into the outskirts of, of those and down in, in into the, the hills. For a long time, uh, it's, been, it's been believed that migration has been going down, but we continue to find all these things that are, show us that people are dying, bodies that let us know that people are dying and who are crossing. Also, um, I find detention centers in Arizona that are, continue to be full, and the Border Patrol continues to hire more officers. So that means there is this kind of need also that they find for more officers. Um, so, so then, yeah, so one is the rhetoric that tells us that the, the narrative that tells us that there is no migration, slow. low. Uh, the other one is that tells us that people continue to flood and come. So just to hear those two voices and which one is true, right? Um, uh, so that's, that's part of this conversation. Who Who is telling the truth? And with the learning tools that we do, uh, one of the things that we want to do is bring attention to that and just taking people to the border and saying, Come and hear from Border Patrol officers, what they're saying, Uh, people crossing or not. Uh, Who are the people crossing? Are these drug dealers or are they criminals or are they people who are coming to work in our farms and our factories? Um, So that's probably what we're trying to do with our resources and trying to provide learning opportunities.
1: I'm curious about that, Salo, because I've I've been lucky enough to go on a a truncated tour with you. And and you're very intentional about meeting with the Border Patrol agents, and you've, t- you've written and talked openly about, you know, how, how the tendency is to want to dehumanize those folks, but you work very hard at making sure that, that that doesn't happen in your work. Have you talked to those folks since, uh, especially since the new president's been in, what do they feel about a wall or what do they feel about sort of this beefed up rhetoric that we have? Uh, do they feel supported or do they feel like this is going to be uh, not effective?
2: You mean the uh, Border Patrol? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, the agents uh, that yes, you talked to. Yes. Uh, two weeks
2: ago, I, I met with border patrol officers. And um, one thing that has changed in the last year, when I visited, the last tours that I did was in October. Border patrols, still at that point, were feeling like they could say, uh, no, we don't need more wall, or no more. Some border patrol officers said, no more border wall. We have enough, and the rest is being protected by drones, helicopters. They have thousands of sensors on the ground. 23,000 Border Patrol officers who are along the border, all the sort of things that they have. Um, what has changed is this. Uh, two weeks ago, when I asked Border Patrol officers what what they thought, they said, uh, we cannot talk about border wall. We cannot talk about any of that. So then they have been pulled back in, in I think, some of the freedom that they felt before of kind of expressing their sentiments or their views have been pulled back. So that was one. I I felt that, yeah, uh, it's too bad that we cannot hear more from border patrol officers. But they let you know uh, a little bit that, yeah, the border wall, what it has done, it's a deterrent. It's a deterrent for people to cross in the cities uh, because they say a border wall, what happens is, Building a wall, it makes it just uh, harder for people to cross in the areas where people can escape, let's say cross, and then within a few seconds they can be into a house or into a building or, or get lost. Uh, so they push people into the desert where they have hours to days to catch them. So then that's what uh, natural deterrent is what they call it. Um, so that's that's what we hear from Border Patrol. They say, no, no more border wall. Now people are being pushed out into the desert where we can catch them in a couple of days. So then, then that's it. Uh, of course, there are different voices in Border Patrol as well on this. Uh, some Border Patrol officers say, yeah, we need more machinery, we need more guns, we need more all that stuff. So, so the, even in, the, in that force, you can hear different voices as well.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, when we were starting to have conversation, even before we started recording this conversation here, Jason, I know you had a good question. There seems to be this rhetoric out there um, that if we just had better security at the border, or if we had more enforcement of our current laws in the U.S., that that would naturally lead to better treatment of immigrants in the United States, naturally, or that this is kind of how you first start to work at immigration reform. And I've heard you both talk about that. Tammy, I wonder if you'd talk about this idea, does it functionally work out that way?
3: Sure, I I think we've we've heard for 15, 20 years now the call for more border enforcement and um, there are a lot of uh, policymakers, a lot of members of Congress who will say, well, we just need to focus on strengthening our border security and strengthening our laws and then we'll get to the process of um, what to do about the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country. But what we've seen then um, is that we've seen the the fences and the walls build along the border. We've seen the the number of Border Patrol officers doubled in the past 10 to 15 years. We've seen all this increased enforcement across the U.S., but we haven't seen any process yet to address the 11 million undocumented immigrants and give them some kind of path to citizenship. Um, And we saw back in 2013, there was a bipartisan bill that passed in the Senate. Um, And it was crafted by Republicans and Democrats, and it did have some security measures, to be sure, but it also had a pathway to citizenship. It was a very long uh, pathway to citizenship, I think 12 years minimum uh, for for folks to to gain citizenship, but at least there was a path there. Uh, And that, though the House of Representatives did not bring that up for a vote. So that bill died in 2014, and there has been no movement on immigration reform since then. And so what we keep seeing are these calls for increased border security, but then we're not doing anything for for the folks that have been here. Um, I believe the statistic now is that 50% of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. have been here for 15 years or longer. So these are not people who crossed the border yesterday. These are people with families and communities that they're very tied to. And so we do need some kind of process for legalization.
1: That brings up something I'm wondering, uh, you or Salo, if you have personal, you know, can speak into this personally or just from things you've read, how does the rhetoric that we're using now, and, and of course it's always varied and it's always been, you know, negative to some extent, but the really harsh rhetoric that started in the campaign last year of, you know, people coming over, they're not their best, rapists and all these other slanders, how does that affect individuals? Like, do, do they feel that stigma as as they're trying to function in the U.S.? Or how does that affect their, their day-to-day Life and how they perceive themselves and their place in our country?
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think, well, one, one is, is uh, how people perceive people coming uh, in, uh, I think there's this a book by Dr. Seuss uh, for children that talks about uh, the monster on the other side of the wall or something like that, or it's somebody else, maybe. But um, this idea of the wall, right? If, if we build the wall, then will it make us have better, better neighbors? And I think um, we will continue just to not know who, who the neighbors are. Uh, and I keep finding time after time that when I take people to the border and they get to, they are very nervous. So then what, that's one of the things that this, this, this narrative of, of the enemy coming uh, has created is that people are afraid of going to Mexico now. And I take them to the border and Jason, you have been to Agua Prieta and um, we go to this town that is very peaceful. We eat ice cream in the plaza, and uh, many of the people are just surprised of what they find on the other side, who are Mexicans, who are people, who are our neighbors. Um, but yeah, it is also, it's affecting a lot of the community here, uh, I think as well. Many of the immigrant communities here becoming very silent and being very afraid of speaking out, um when we have had rallies or any kind of action in the last few months very few people show up because they're afraid of being caught and also um yeah that may that's being part of, of this too not being being able to express uh, themselves and asking for their rights so that is also one of the products or byproducts of this, uh, this as well
0: there seems to be this history in our country um that's racialized in lots of ways this idea of- using law and order language or criminal language by politicians to sort of criminalize people of color in many different ways. We've seen that with the African American community, we've seen that now with language about immigrants to somehow make it more palatable to swallow deportations, I think. Um, How are you working with congregations um, and the people you're meeting with, Salo? I mean, I know your work is really playing right into this to kind of peel that language back for people.
2: Well, Tammy and I work quite a bit in trying to find uh, language, our work is it starts with theo- a the theological foundation. Uh, so I, I find that uh, when when I visit congregations, a lot of people want to jump into the conversation from a politics perspective or a perspective of what they hear in the news. And I think as Christians, we should go into the Bible and see what the Bible says. Right? Uh, where where does it start? And and I've done exercises with uh, with uh, exercises with youth and trying to find. Um, what are the stories of strangers in the Bible, immigrants? Uh, and we find that time after time, there is a story of exile, people falling into slavery or into uh, exile, the freedom uh, of a refugee, asylum seekers, of uh, Jesus the refugee, Abraham, the immigrant, uh, on and on and on. Um, but uh, the issue of law, I think also that many, many people come to me and say, well, Romans 13 says, you know, everybody should submit under the law. And one of the ways that to look at this is, for the last four decades, we have heard our politicians, legislators say, we have a broken immigration system in the United States. And none of them have actually done anything to fix it. We are working on very outdated laws. And for us as Christians, I think there is this prophetic voice in the Bible that, that speaks about laws being correct, working good. And if the laws are working good, then everybody can submit under the law. So one idea is that people are breaking laws. The other one is that people are trying to navigate broken laws at this point. And if we continue to hear that we have a broken immigration system, isn't that a broken broken law system? And how can we fix it? And I think so. I think we're not being very honest, uh, and our politicians are not being honest. Uh, when they say people are breaking the law, uh, people are navigating laws that are broken. People are navigating systems that are broken. uh, And and that is the truth, that uh, we don't have enough uh, visas or or the quota system does not allow for people to reunite, families to reunite for labor needs, for humanitarian needs, and we need to expand those or work so they could work faster. And that is the truth. So so we have criminalized that. Also, I would say going back to history, why is it that we as immigrants now get to wear these uh, titles of asylum seekers, aliens, illegal aliens, when uh, 200 years ago, it used to be pioneers, explorers, and in, in pilgrims, right? Well, How about if we change the language to, hey, watch these new pioneers come crossing the border, uh, these new pilgrims uh, coming here? I think it will change. So then we have created a system to create xenophobia or, or fear of the strange.
3: Yeah, I think we we have to be really careful who we label a criminal. I mean, uh, this criminalization rhetoric, like Sal was saying, is very much tied up with racism and and xenophobia and all that. But also, you know, as Mennonites, we do a lot of work with restorative justice. And so just, you know, to label anyone with any kind of criminal conviction, uh, a dangerous criminal, is also problematic and and we've we've done a lot in the last few years to try to educate on that, too, because, again, starting with the Obama administration, they had that felons, not families program. They were saying, we're going to deport felons. We're not going to deport families. Well, in fact, they did both. And the, the so-called felons that they were deporting were often people with very minor convictions um, and very old convictions. Some of them would be... Um, you know a 15 year old DUI conviction or a marijuana possession conviction from when they were back in college and now they have a spouse and a family and it's years later and and they would be considered a priority for deportation and considered a danger to mm-hmm. to their community when when they're clearly not um, and then also a lot of convictions for immigration related offenses i mean just being present um being undocumented in this country is not a criminal violation it's it's termed an administrative violation of the law not a criminal violation but if somebody um uses a fake social security number to get the heat turned on in your apartment because the state you're in is now requiring that really to catch undocumented immigrants but some of them have made that you know a requirement and then they'll get in trouble for document fraud for putting that fake social security number down and they'll get a misdemeanor or a felony conviction for, for document fraud, and that'll be on their record. And that was another thing that the Obama administration would pick people up for. And and so, you know, just, just this labeling of great swaths of, of immigrants as criminals is really problematic. And we're seeing that, of course, even more so with the Trump administration in his his language in his speeches and um, in in President Trump's executive orders, we're we're hearing very much um, that immigrants are a threat to public safety and and this labeling of of all immigrants as criminals. And and just to note, this also flies in the face of statistics that clearly, so study after study show that recent immigrants have much lower rates of criminal behavior than the US-born population. So just this idea that criminals are coming here and increasing our crime, I mean, the immigrants are coming here and increasing our crime rates is just patently false.
1: But Tammy, just hearing you talk about those things, maybe you think of pastor Max out in Iowa and a lot of our listeners will remember, but some may not. Can you tell us a little, tell us the story of pastor Max?
3: Sure. So uh, pastor Max Viatoro, a pastor from Iowa city, Iowa, had been in the country about 20 years, uh, came when he was a a young man, I think around 19, 20 years old. And um, in 2015, he was apprehended outside his home by immigration officials. He had um, a DUI conviction and a document fraud conviction, which were about, um, I think, 15, 16 years old. At the time, they were yeah, I think they were from 1998 and and 99. So very old convictions. Um, He had since, you know, eschewed all alcohol use and in fact, helped people in his community with substance abuse problems, um, had become a pastor in the Mennonite church, had gotten married, has four lovely US citizen children. And he was picked up and there was this huge campaign outpouring of support to try to keep him in the country. And unfortunately, after about two and a half weeks, he was deported to Honduras, you know, a country he had not been to in more than 20 years. And that's, that's been a real struggle for his family. Of course, the, the church conference there has been trying to support them, but it's just, it's just one example. I mean, I think we lifted that one up because it was such a classic example of what we knew was happening to thousands of people all over the country, but because it it touched the the Mennonite community and and was such a compelling case. That's that's why we have talked about that one a lot.
1: Right, it touched us and it got us involved. And that's what I'd wanna ask too. So how do we get involved in this immigration situation now where things do seem to be, I guess murky in a way where we want some change, but we don't exactly know where to start and what to ask for. And so if I'm here in North Carolina and most of my representatives are more in the uh, enforcement camp, if I interact with them, what do I start out? What, what do I ask for? What message am I trying to get across? How do you advise folks when, they, when they're engaging with their representatives to work for justice and fairness for immigration?
3: Sure. I mean, overall, the most important thing you can do is just communicate with them and let them know your views about immigration and about immigrants in your community. You don't even have to talk about a specific piece of legislation or a specific policy or be an expert on any of that. All, all of the members of Congress need to hear positive messages about immigrants. They um, particularly are interested to hear stories from their local community. So if you have a story from your church or even just a story that you read in the paper to to call them up or write them a letter and say, you know, I heard about this this family that was separated because the husband was deported and he had been in the country for 15 years, and I hate to see that. And I hate to see the family separated. You know, can you please do something to to help give a pathway to citizenship for folks like that? And that message alone is enough. Um, and and also on social media, you can do that on social media too when you see the member of Congress say something about how you know we're we're getting rid of all of the criminal immigrants in the country, you can say, you know, well, I know this case of so-and-so who doesn't fit that, that characterization, who was deported, and, and this isn't what's happening, and you need to work for better policies that will, will stop this from happening. Um, and then just to add, um, here at the Washington office, we do have an action alert list, so if people sign up for that, which they can do at washington.mcc.org, We do let people know then about pieces of legislation that are moving currently. Uh, So if there's a call-in day to support some some legislation or to oppose a certain piece of legislation, we would alert folks to that and give them information and, and give them some websites they could go to if they wanted to learn more and give them ways that they can call or sample letters that they can use to write their members of Congress.
0: You know, Tammy, just thinking about these action alerts that you put out and Salo, going back to kind of you talking about the undergirding, the faith undergirding for the work that you do and the ways that MCC talks about immigration education. I wonder if you all could talk about that a little bit. What are the criteria you all use to think about what a good piece of legislation is or um, what our communities get engaged in?
3: So um, we do, in, in Midnight Central Committee, we have a set of immigration policy principles that uh, have been informed by our work over over the years with immigrants. We have uh, documentation services that we do that we provide for immigrants in different parts of the country, and so we we hear back from those folks what some of the challenges are, and we also have, of course, folks like Salo and others who who work closely with recent immigrants in various communities, and so we we hear what some of the struggles are. And we we take that back. And that's how we would evaluate uh, a piece of legislation or a policy coming out of the administration to see how it would affect the immigrants that MCC works with and and immigrants all over the country.
2: Also, a good piece of legislation would have uh, something that deals with the root causes of migration. Um, I think the work of MCC in 54 countries lets us know that as we're working with uh, relief, development, and peace in 54 countries, we also find out that people, when they have what they need, they don't need to migrate or or, or we prevent uh, or help them stay in their communities. And I think that's what uh, what we need to do. Create uh, opportunities for people, support, uh, not support war, not support uh, in any kind of displacement. Uh, at this point, the mining, uh, extraction of resources, conflict, uh, all the sort of things that we are also supporting our foreign policy, sometimes it's supporting, uh, is pushing people out. <clears throat> and how do we prevent uh, some of that as well uh, through through providing relief, development and peace? And I think with MCC, we have found that the projects that we have in all these countries um, have helped people stay in their communities. If people won't migrate uh, if they have what they need. Some people need to migrate due to environmental or because they want to, they want to reunite with family. but uh, there is a big difference between people who want to migrate and people who are being forced to migrate. Uh, and as much as we can, uh, or we, sh- we should try to prevent
1: migration uh, when it's forced. And it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this problem is so complex that you have to tackle it on a lot of different levels. And we have the, the legislative and we have the, the push points of migration we need to think about. But of course, what we mentioned too, there are people here on the ground who, who are feeling stigmatized and feeling like they can't speak and facing very real situations. I do in the work you do with churches, what, what kind of good sort of creative church responses have you seen that churches are doing to, to show hospitality and show support for uh, immigrant communities?
2: One is I, I invite communities to, to share stories. Um, and that's that's something that really helps create this uh, this link. I always talk about the quilt. Uh, we Mennonites do like quilting and um, – And it seems like we don't share enough stories. And, and, you know, you look at a quilt and it's this little piece of uh, fabric that you start stitching to other pieces of fabric. And very soon you have this beautiful quilt of colors in different shapes. And I think we need to do more of that. Uh, Immigrant communities and also uh, communities of of, uh, Anglo communities, people have been established here for for many generations. At some point... uh, uh, stories of migration become troublesome. They're full of sometimes drama and and also hardship, but we need to tell them, even with those uh, things. So I invite always people to tell their stories of migration um, because that makes, helps us put the stitches and the knots together in this quilt uh, of, of migration. Um, so that that has helped also uh, inviting uh, people to uh, to offer hospitality in a way that. Um, you know, sanctuary is one thing that we, a conversation that we have going on right now in our congregations. And I actually know of a Mennonite congregation that very soon will be offering hospitality uh, to a, to a, a family. The, the mother in the family has two felonies uh, at this point. And the two felonies that she has are because she crossed the border twice, tried to reunite with her four children who are U.S. citizens. And so imagine that. You're being, you're a felon and your two felonies are because you're trying to reunite with your children, who are U.S. citizens. Uh, so, so, yeah, how do we, and this, this congregation is try, is all going to offer sanctuary to this woman, but how can more congregations become aware of what's happening, the criminalization of people uh, in these very unfair and uh, just uh, situations, and then also become aware, but also act uh, upon those things. And, and I think... Uh, Offering hospitality is one. Uh, informing yourself more about sanctuary and how do we create those, and also you know the calls uh, to our legislators uh, to be involved in that too. Um, I think is very important as well. So that's those are my invitations. Uh, uh, also to read the Bible, <laughs> read uh, 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 the Bible stories of migrants, of, of migrants people moving from place to place and asking how God is acting upon them uh, and in all these stories, right?
0: So this podcast is called The Peace Lab and it may seem obvious, but if you think about that word peace and what that means for you and your work, um, how do you think about what peace means for you?
3: Yeah, so I, I think for me, you know, when I was younger, I think peace used to mean an, an absence of war, an absence of violence, and, and as I, I was exposed to more in the world, especially more of the injustice and suffering that's happened, I started to re- redefine what peace means to me and realize that it, it means having access to meet your, your basic, having the ability to meet basic needs, you know, having, having food, having shelter, Um, certainly being able to live free from conflict, but also being able to live free from domestic violence or, or other, um, threats to your well-being. And so, you know, I just, I think a lot of my philosophy around peace goes back to Matthew 25 and, and thinking about how, how we're judged on, on how we treat people that are in need, that are hungry, that are immigrants, that are in prison and, and how we, we, how we, treat those that really don't have peace in their lives, that are really struggling, whether it's with violence or, or some other struggle. And, and so that's, to me, how we really need to bring about peace. It goes back to what Sala was saying about you know, addressing the root causes of migration. If, if everyone was able to, to meet these needs, to not be hungry, to, to not be a victim of, of violence, then they, a lot of them would not seek to, to migrate.
2: I also think. Well, I really like the Peace Lab uh, title that you have given to this podcast uh, because I think when I think of a lab, um, it's this place where where you research, you experiment, uh, and you can measure things, right? And um, and I think that's a lot of the work that Tammy and I do, uh, and that we're doing with MCC. A lot of research trying to figure out what are ways that we can uh, create a, some kind of vaccine for. Um, uh, for xenophobia, uh, for the fear of strangers, for this fear that is being the, it being injected in, in human beings at this point, point. Uh, and uh, I think Jesus was was great at crossing borders and in trying in bringing Peter and all the people to meet strangers outside this you know this, their their box, uh, pushing out. So so yeah, Tammy and I try to find ways to eradicate. Uh, xenophobia through theological, biblical resources, through learning opportunities, and um, the, yeah, how do how do we deal with the root causes and speak about the issues that are happening right now? So, so in our area, building peace is trying to figure out ways to to work on both the the immediate needs of migrants uh, and then also the the root causes, the long term. Uh, so one of them is how do we stop the deaths of migrants in the desert? How do we do that? Uh, then how do we stop also the deportation of mothers with felonies? And the, and the, only, the only felony is because of wanting to reunite with their children. Uh, how do we create better uh, policies that are more humane for work and for reun, uh, reunification of families? Uh, so then doing research on that, doing some experiments with uh, resources as well. we. Uh, hear our heads on the wall sometimes trying to figure out which resource will work, try to, uh, to eradicate uh, xenophobia. And yeah, it's, it's a waste that we are very grateful for uh, for our work. It's very challenging sometimes, but it's good. One last thing, I think that this issue of immigration, this virus, is not about borders. Uh, some people think, we talk about citizenship. If they're only citizens, they will be treated better, right? And we know that, right? Uh, Talk to African-Americans or or Latinos in the United States who are citizens. It doesn't mean that citizenship gives them uh, a free ticket to, or a blank check to all the rights. Uh, Sometimes we have to fight for rights here. So um, I always use this this story about Katrina, when Katrina hit New Orleans. uh, And uh, many people were pushed out into Houston. And U.S. citizens were pushing back people from New Orleans, uh, under bridges, living homeless, right? So it's not an issue of citizen, non-citizen, immigrant, non-immigrant, it's a, it's a human condition. And I think we need to find some kind of vaccine in this peace lab of yours uh, so that we can continue to ask the questions, research, measure. We need to continue to ask God, what are the ways that we can create better vaccines uh, for this?
3: Yeah, and it's, it's not just about changing laws, like Salo's saying. It's about changing hearts, too. We, we really want to address the fear and the racism and the xenophobia and change the way that people think about immigrants and migration.
0: Salo, I think it was actually you who made the connection between the story of, for me, this was a while ago, but you made this connection between the story of Jesus entering the temple and overturning the tables of the moneylenders. And it makes me wonder, you know, what are those tables in our own church settings right now that we need to overturn? Um, those things that we've let take root um, mm-hmm. that have no place in the church.
2: If anybody is interested in coming to the border and in, in participating in some of uh, the learning opportunities, we offer several opportunities. Check our website, uh, mcc.org, uh, look for immigration. Visit the Washington Memo website as well. and uh, We invite constituents, non-constituents to participate in our using our resources, but also uh, learning opportunities like learning tours, immigration law trainings and many other activities that we have uh, so uh, people can be informed about immigration.
0: Well, Tammy and Salo, thank you so much to both of you and thanks to those of you who have been listening today. This has been an episode of Peace Lab and you can find this episode and all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and the PGSN and the Mennonite websites as well. Our theme song is written by David Fisher Fast and that's all for this week. Thanks again, Salo, Tammy, Jason, for joining us. Thank, thank you. you.